I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903-586-6520. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, we would greatly appreciate that as well. To give one time or on a regular basis, you can text GIVE to 903 903- 586-6520. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible-believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. Well, how many of you have ever heard the phrase, if left to my own devices? A lot of us, we use that on occasion. The phrase that means to be left unsupervised or uncontrolled, to be allowed to do as one pleases. In our society, it is used in positive and negative ways. For example, a student of a good teacher might say, I've been taught this subject so well that when left to my own devices, I'm going to ace the exam. An employee who's been properly trained might say, I know all I need to know to do this job, so when left to my own devices, I'll, I'll be able to accomplish the task at hand. It can also be used in a negative way. For example, an employer might say, I have to stay on my employees because if left to their own devices, they would not get any work done. Parents of children might say, if, if we left our children to their own devices, they would be in all sorts of trouble. So that phrase is used in a positive and negative way by us. But something you learn in Scripture is that when this type of language is used of people morally, it is always negative. When we do as we please, when we or without good, godly leadership to guide us. When we do what is right in our own eyes, it always goes bad for us. And the reason why is because we're sinners. If, if left unsupervised, if left uncontrolled, if left alone to do as we please and act in our own strength, we would choose, and we have chosen, to live our lives apart from and opposed to God. If you have your Bibles, turn to Judges 19. We are back in Judges, and we are going to finish out our study in the next three weeks, and we have learned, before we took a long break, about five weeks in October, we learned that while life had gotten bad by the time Samson was judge, while it seemed as if it couldn't get much worse. While it appears as if God's people had hit rock bottom in Judges 16, we learn in Judges 17 through 21 that rock bottom has a basement. We're going to hit the ground floor of the basement today, and for the next few Sundays, we're going to take a stroll 
along the basement floor. So that's your warning right there, okay? Some tough chapters that we're going to cover over the next three weeks. Some of the darkest chapters in Scripture. These are such tough chapters that many, when they're preaching through Judges, I've noticed they just skim over them or they'll skip them completely and just end right there with Samson in Judges 16 or they'll just summarize the last five chapters in, in one sermon. But as I told you before the break, I'm still young enough maybe naive enough to uh, tackle these each in a Sunday. But we're, we're committed to preach and teach through the Word, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, preaching what's next in the text. And Judges 19 is what is next in the text. So we're going we're gonna to cover these final chapters in this book. Before the break, we began this section and we said that while in one sense... The story of the different judges ends with the last judge, Samson. The story of judges shifts in the last quarter of the book from giving us a bird's eye view of this dark period in God's people's history to giving us a closer, more detailed look on the ground level. So the story, it, it slows down and it gives us a close-up look at what life was like in this, in this day. For most of the book, we have just been sort of skimming things over. We've been, we've been just learning it very, very vaguely. God's people did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. We, we've heard that again and again. With a few references to idolatry in Judges 9 through 16, we hear more detail about the wicked Abimelech and mention of the foolish, foolish vow of Jephthah. And we, we spent a little while on Samson's shenanigans as well. But in Judges 17 through 21, the author of the book gives us a front row seat, a close-up view of the wicked debauchery and depravity of God's people. While 17 and 18, which we covered before the break, are bad, nothing compares to the events that are recorded in Judges 19 and the aftermath in 20 and 21. God's people in this book, they've been on a downward spiral throughout the book and they hit the basement of rock bottom in these last few chapters. We're, we're going to see that when people are left to their own devices, when God's people do as they please, they reject God, they serve themselves, and they hurt others. They mirror the Canaanites in their beliefs and practices, attitudes, and actions. There are verses of Scripture repeated throughout the last few chapters of Judges that really give us some insight into what's going on. Because when you're reading this, you got to think to yourself, what is going on with this people here? What is their problem? The author of Judges lets us know. Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 18.1, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Judges 19.1, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Judges 21.25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The repetition here is significant. The author is reminding us here, as he is reporting on these horrific 
events that when God's people are left to their own devices morally, when they're a law to themselves, when they do what is right in their own eyes, they reject God, serve themselves, and hurt others. When society is left to its own devices, relationships suffer, justice is abandoned, and society crumbles. First notice this, when people are a law to themselves and left to their own devices, the marriage relationship suffers. Point number one. Look at verse one. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remotest parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. And, there was, and, and was there some four months, verse 3, then her husband arose and went after her. Now, before I explain this situation here, it's important to note that there are no names mentioned in these verses. That is important. That's not just a random detail and, and just sort of uh, randomly placed there and, and they just omitted the names for whatever reason. That is, that is on purpose. This is a literary device that was used in this day in Jewish writings. The author is not reporting a rare and isolated event, but he is explaining here by just giving this example here of what life was like in general. For people in Israel during this dark and difficult time. Daniel Block in his commentary on Judges says this, look at this quote, this Levite represents every Levite and the concubine every woman. Anonymity is a deliberate literary device adopted to reflect the universality of Israel's Canaanization. The author is just showing us through these examples of these different Israelites, what life was like for the most part during this period of time and how God's people were now mirroring the Canaanites around them. Notice this Levite is no different from the Levite that we looked at in chapters 17 18. Now he's a different Levite, but there's not much difference between the two. Remember that Levite in 17 and 18, he served as priest in the household of Micah. That was a big no-no. Then he graduated to be priest for the wicked people of Dan. They were both sojourners, meaning they were wandering strangers in a foreign land. The word sojourner here lets us know that this Levite is not where he's supposed to be and not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Mary Webb. And his commentary on Judges says this, according to Joshua, according to Joshua 21, the Levites had been allocated cities to live in with adjacent pasture land for their livestock. The family of Aaron were to serve as priests and the rest of the Levites were to assist them. They were not meant to wander, but in the period of the Judges, everyone's doing what they want to do anyways. They're, they're living as a law to themselves. Everyone is doing what's right in his or her own eyes. We're also told that the Levite had a concubine. A number of men had multiple wives and concubines or lesser wives in, in this day. And I've had 
Many ask me over the years as they read through their Old Testament because it's mentioned often, is this okay? The answer is, of course, no. When God designed marriage, he designed it to be between one man and one woman faithfully for a lifetime. He did not take three ribs from Adam and make three women and brought them together. He gave him Eve and those two came together and became one flesh in marriage. Listen, just because someone is said to be doing a certain thing or is saying a certain thing in scripture does not mean it's good and does not mean that we should emulate it. There is a lot this Levite says and does that we most certainly should never do. He is doing what's right in his own eyes. And when society acts in this way, when left to their own devices morally, relationships suffer, especially the marriage relationship. If you want to know how a society is doing at any point in history, if you want to know how we're doing today, just take a look at the most important, most foundational institution established by God in Scripture, the institution of marriage, and you'll have your answer. Marriage is from God. It's not our idea. It's not society's idea. It's not the world's idea. It's God's idea. It's His institution. Therefore, God expects for His people to uphold marriage in the right way, in the way that he established it initially and honor that institution. You can really tell where a person is, where a so-called church is, where society is, by the way in which they view the institution of marriage. Since the fall, the marriage relationship has suffered which is an issue because we see very clearly that the state of things in society is a direct reflection of the state of things in the home, and the state of things in the home is a direct reflection of the state of things in the marriage relationship. In other words, you could say it in this way. As goes the marriage, so goes the home, so goes society, so goes the world. That's why God places such a high value on marriage. This Levite doesn't value marriage that highly at all. He's with this lady, a lesser wife, a concubine. She was someone, a concubine was someone that, would, uh, that a man could sleep with, but he had a little obligation to. She was denied inheritance and sometimes had to give her children away to a wife of a higher status in the family who struggled with infertility. So we, we know contextually that this woman was not viewed and treated well. We also learn that she was unfaithful as well. We're told she was unfaithful to him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judea and was there some four months. Verse 3, then her husband arose and went after her. Not a good relationship, right? Levite has multiple wives, does not even view this woman on the same level as his other wives. She doesn't value the relationship either because she's unfaithful to him and leaves him. He shows he doesn't really truly love her or care because it takes four months for him to even go look for her. Guys, if our wives were missing, we'd be looking that moment, right? But this was common. 
Because people lived as a law to themselves and did what was right in their own eyes. They made up their own ideas and rules as to what the marriage relationship should be and perverted this precious institution that had been established by God and society suffered as a result. What about you? Have you made compromises today when it comes to how you view the institution of marriage? Have you been more influenced by what the world has to say than what God has said in His Word? Are your thoughts and beliefs shaped by what is taught in Scripture or by what is popular in culture? Good questions to ask yourself. When left to our own devices, when we make decisions based upon what we think is right and compromise biblically, the family struggles and society suffers. We need God's word to instruct us, his spirit to guide us, his grace to enable us to stand for him and against the world set against him. Second point, when society is left to its own devices, not only does the marriage relationship suffer, but so do other relationships as well. When people are a law to themselves and left to their own devices, they function in a cold, selfish, and depraved way. Look at verse 3. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Now, why is the, the, the girl's father so happy? Some of us are like, how can he be happy about this situation? Well, we don't really know. We're not told here, but it could have been that he was, he was happy that this man had not completely abandoned his daughter. He's coming to restore this relationship. In this culture, marriage was, was really, in this day, the, the only hope. For a woman, families wanted to, to see their children taken care of after they die, and this Levite seems to be the only hope for this man's young daughter. Because she had been unfaithful and had, had left the Levite, the father might also be in fear of his daughter's life. We know in certain circumstances the penalty for adultery or desertion was death. He is also trying to probably avoid disgrace as well, those are all potential reasons for why this man greets this Levite with a smile. But something else that's lost on us in our world today that was highly valued by God's people in this day was the importance of hospitality. They placed a, a, a very, they, they put that, they prioritized that, being hospitable. It was very, very important to them. They have been told by God in Leviticus 19, that when a stranger sojourns in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You should show him hospitality. If God's people Israel were to treat strangers and foreigners with hospitality, how much more so somebody in their own family? We're going to see that this man, this father, is going to show his daughter and son-in-law great hospitality. There is another reason why we're shown this. The author is making a contrast here between how this, this Levite and his concubine are treated in their father's house versus how they will be treated by the tribe of Benjamin and Gabeah, their, their brothers. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 4. 
And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night together. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning. And he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread. And after that, you may go. Verse 6. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. He just can't get away from his father-in-law here and get to go home. Verse 8. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day is waned toward the evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to a close. Lodge here and let your hearts be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He had had enough of his father-in-law's hospitality. He's like, i got to get home and uh, spend the night in my own bed. We know how that feels, right? He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. That could be dangerous. But we will pass on to Gebeah. Okay. So... His father-in-law has kept them too long. He's kept them several days, been very insistent that they stay. He's shown them great hospitality, and he's kept them too late in the evening, and you did not travel through the night in this day. It was too dangerous. So they're trying to find a place to stay for the evening, and when they reach this Jebusite city, his servant suggests they lodge there, but the Levite refused because while the Israelites valued and practiced hospitality, the Gentiles did not. It could be dangerous in this foreign city. Instead, he suggested they go to Gebeah. The Benjaminites lived in Gebeah. Remember, Benjamin was the young son of Rachel, one of the favored sons of Jacob. While one of the smaller tribes during the period of the Exodus, Benjamin was important, an important tribe amongst the, the Israelites. We'll talk about that more as we continue on because we're going to talk a lot about the tribe of Benjamin in the coming weeks. But they were expecting when they go into Gebeah to experience the same kind of hospitality that they enjoyed at their father's house. That's what they were expecting. Notice what they find. Verse 13. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gebeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gebeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city. That's what you did in that day until someone took you in. But notice the next line, very shocking. For no one took them into his house to spend the night. That's a shocking detail. No Israelite showed hospitality to these Israelites. 
No one showed them hospitality. What the Levite feared in Jabus happened in Gebeah. Look at verse 16. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim. So he's not initially, he's not originally from Gebeah. And he was sojourning in Gebeah. So a man was not even a local from Gebeah, but he was staying in the, in the city at the time. And he's going to be the one who's going to bring them in. Look at it, into verse 16. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. So they have that connection, the Ephraim connection, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into this house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There, there is no lack of anything. So this, this Levite is desperate here to find a place. He lets this sojourner in Ephraim know we have all we need to feed our animals. We have bread and wine for ourselves. We won't be too much trouble is what he's letting them know. Look at verse 20. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So this is strange, isn't it? He warns them not to remain in the square. Something's up with this town. They didn't know it at the time, but something's up here. Kind of reminds me of a scary movie when people go in to a town they don't know and people are acting strange and everybody's out of the square by sundown. They're like, something's not right here. He lets them know, you need to, you need to be inside. He takes, them, he takes them in. But something's off with, with the people in Gebeah. This man takes them in. He feeds their animals washes their feet, and, and he feeds them. Verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now the phrase know him here does not mean that they wanted to Talk with the visitor and get to know him better. This is a sexual reference. The Benjaminites want to assault this Levite. This is a reference to sexual assault. Those of you who know your Old Testament, what does this story remind you of? Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19. We're in Leviticus 19, that was Genesis 19. There was a time when the Israelites looked upon the people of Sodom and Gomorrah with disdain, thinking that's what those people do. That's what the Gentiles do. We learn from Genesis 19 to Judges 19 that the worst sins of the Gentiles have now made their way to the Israelites. The Benjaminites have become like the Sodomites. That is shocking. This was shocking for the Levite and his concubine. 
They entered this city expecting warm greetings and loving hospitality from the Benjaminites. Instead, they are met with cold hostility and rank depravity. What will the man of the house do? Let's look at it. Verse 23. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man is coming to my house. Do not do this vile thing. When society is left to its own devices, not only does the marriage relationship suffer, but other relationships as well. People treat one another in a cold, heartless, selfish, and depraved way. These worthless fellows are about my wants, my needs, my desires, and they will take whatever they want from someone else to get what they want. They don't matter. It doesn't matter who they hurt. It don't matter who they offend. When people function as a law to themselves, they treat others in this way. When people do what is right in their own eyes, what results from that are all sorts of, of perversions, especially sexual perversion. We see this in our society today, don't we? We absolutely do. It was happening in the period of the judges. We see... Men married to multiple women, shacked up with concubines. We see Samson visiting prostitutes. And here we see sexual sin on a criminal level. Thankfully, this man from Ephraim acknowledges this wickedness. He appeals to his people and he says, No, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Do not do this vile thing. He acknowledges that this, this homosexual assault is a vile thing, but he makes a huge mistake that others make today. He labels one type of sexual sin unacceptable while labeling another allowable. The Bible teaches, and I'm about to get canceled, that's okay. Let them try and cancel Scripture. The Bible teaches that sex, all sex, outside of a heterosexual marriage is sin. Period. Is homosexuality a sin? Yes, for both parties. Is homosexual assault a sin? Yes, it is. And it's criminal for the one guilty of the act. Is sex between a man and woman outside of marriage a sin? Yes, for both parties. Is heterosexual assault, sex without consent, a sin? Yes, criminal for the abuser. Matters not what society says. Matters not what the courts say. God is clear in His Word that all sex outside of a heterosexual marriage is sin. It's, it's clear. The Scripture is clear on this. This man from Ephraim and this, this Levite are labeling one type of sexual sin as un, unacceptable while labeling another allowable. Church, we must not do this. Instead of resisting these men and possibly trying to minister to them, praying for them, this man from, from Ephraim offers up something else to them that is equally vile. And that leads us to our next point. When society is left to its own devices, certain sinful behavior is permissible and human life is not valued as it should be. 
Look at verse 24. This man from Ephraim labels this homosexual assault as vile. And in the next breath he says, Behold, here my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man do not do this outrageous thing. As if it wasn't equally outrageous to offer up your daughter and this other woman as well. Both are equally egregious. You see what's going on here? These men are doing what's right in their own eyes. They're picking and choosing what sins they think are deplorable and which sins are admissible. He tells these, these men, take these women, do to them what seems good to you. That is the mantra for the men of Israel in the period of the judges. They did not value women as they did men in this society. They failed to study what God's word had said on the matter. They, they, they had long forgotten that God created man and woman, male and female, in his image. Both of them in his image. They are his image bearers. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Men and women, we've been created in the image of God to bring glory to Him. They, they, had, they had overlooked that. They had forgotten that. They had rejected that. They had failed to see that God had also given His people a detailed set of rules for them to abide by that protect the rights of both men and women. The men in the time of the judges did not value a woman's life as being equal to theirs. They thought if anyone is going to be abused, it should be a woman that is evil. When left to their own devices, men label certain sinful behavior as allowable. Do not value human life equally. Have we, as a society, labeled certain sins allowable today? Absolutely have. Do we as a society value all of human life equally? Absolutely not. See what happens. Look at verse 25. But the men would not listen to him. They were insistent the Levite be sent out to them. He in desperation seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. What a sad, sad scene. This is evil on another level. The Israelites were abusing their own. They had moved from being God's people to being sexual sadists. They raped this woman throughout the night. They left her on the verge of death. How's the Levite going to respond? Not good. Verse 27. And her master rose up in the morning when he opened the doors of the house and, and, and went out to go on his way. Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. So sad. And he put her on his donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife. Taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. 
when left to their own devices, people fail to value human life as they should. These Benjaminites from Gebeah do not value this woman, nor does anyone else. They treat her like an object, and this, this Levite treats her like a piece of property. While she's unresponsive, he picks her up, puts her on his donkey like a piece of property, and takes her home. He then does something even more vile. He dismembers her, sends her remains all throughout Israel. He does this in anger for what he believes these men of Gebeah have done to him. This woman whom he owns in his mind has been abused by these wicked men. They have used and abused what's his, so he uses her to make a statement. He treats her like one of his animals, what you would treat an animal in this day, and he dismembers her and sends her remains throughout the land. This is bad. This is the basement of rock bottom. So bad, the author of Judges says in verse 30. All who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Basement of rock bottom. Now we're not told whether or not she died after a night of abuse at Gebeah or at the hands of the Levite. It seems as if she was alive possibly, though just barely and unresponsive when the Levite returns the Levite blames the men of Gebeah. He says they murdered her, but should we take his word for it? That's why commentators are, are split over whether or not they, they believe his, his story or not. The point is, everyone is guilty for what has happened to her. Her blood is on his hands. He sent her out there for them. Her, her blood is on their hands. They abused her all night to the verge of death within an inch of her life. We are witnessing society come apart at the seams. There is no value for human life in this society. And if you think we're better off today, think again. Worldwide, the prostitution business makes $186 billion a year. The porn industry that treats people like objects is a billion-dollar business. It generates $12 billion in annual revenue in the U.S. alone that is larger than the combined annual revenues of ABC, NBC, and CBS. Before the most recent ruling, there were close to or over then, almost uh, even over certain years, over a million abortions each year in the United States alone. When left to our own devices, sinful behavior is permissible and human life is not valued. What is to be our response, church? What are we to do? Well, let's look at what the Israelites do here. We actually get a good example of what we should do here by them, minus Benjamin. Verse 30, And all who saw it said, Consider it. Take counsel and speak. They considered the matter. They took counsel together on the issue and they spoke against it. How are we to respond when we witness society come apart at the seams? Are we to bury our head in the sand? No, we learn from their example here. We're to consider the problem. We're to become educated on the issues. 
We're to read Christian articles on the issues of the day. We're to read books from, from other believers who, who offer us a, a biblical worldview and help us to think on these issues. We listen to podcasts from other, other evangelical Christians who, who give us perspective on these issues. We, we are to speak out. We're to show up. We're to vote like Christians. We're to be image bearers of God. We're to be agents of change in this broken and fallen world that is set against God. Listen, I didn't pick this today because we got the election coming up. I know some of you think that. This is just what's next in the text. This is what God has for us today. Believers, you and I, We have been saved. We've been gathered together at this church to labor together to push back the darkness in our world with the light of God's gospel message. How well are you doing at this work? Many of you are seriously discouraged today by what you're witnessing in society. Listen, the songs that we've been singing today are right. We're to have joy in our hearts. We are not to lose hope when times get tough and our days get dark because Christ has come. He has come. He has come to live and die and rise again to save us from sin and death. He has restored us to a right relationship with God. And guess what? He's returning. The same way he left, he's coming back. And when he returns, he's going to right every wrong. He's going to make us like him. He's going to restore and redeem this broken and fallen world in which we live. Are you ready for that day? Are you living with this hope today, believers? While we are to consider the matter, while we're to stand together, while we're to speak out, while we're to be involved pushing back the darkness in our world with the light of God's gospel, we are never to lose hope. Our future is fixed. Our king is returning. We're to labor labor faithfully until he returns. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation today? Do you have this hope? If not, that's your invitation today. I want you to leave here today with this hope if you don't have it. I invite you today, if you have not, forsake your way. Don't go at life on your own, doing what's right in your own eyes. We're told in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man in the end. It's a way of death. Forsake that way of death and receive abundant, eternal Life through what Christ has accomplished for you by forsaking your way of death and laying your life down before the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give your life up and over to him today so you can leave here today with this hope and so that we can labor together in this world as his church. Let's pray together.